0: the other war against the Anglo-American rules-based order and how to stuff up an infrastructure announcement coming up on today's show. Welcome to the citizens report for the 25th of march 2022 i'm elisa barwick joining me today is citizens party research director robbie barwick welcome thanks lisa and before we get into the show don't forget to like uh, if you do like the show and hit the subscribe button and notification bell and share this as widely as you can uh, today we'll be discussing the isolation of russia is backfiring and also. How the government's announcement of the Hell's Gate Dam could kill the Bradfield scheme forever, in that, effect.
1: Exactly. And before we begin, uh, Elise, I just also want to mention that this coming Thursday, uh, the Citizens Party is doing another live stream with candidates on the question of cleaning out financial corruption in Australia. And so our candidates that have some expertise in this area, including Mrs. Denise Braley, are going to be uh, featured on that live stream. So please tune in. There's lots of financial victims out there. Tune in, have your questions ready. You can send them to ask at citizensparty.org.au or you can participate in the live stream chat on the night. But I also wanted to say next week, uh, Elisa, is the last um, sitting of parliament before the uh, federal budget. Uh, sorry, before it's the budget sitting before the federal election. Um, we're going to put out a, an announcement. I just want to preface it today. We're going we're to put out a, um, details for a blitz of calls next week into Parliament, especially to the Prime Minister, the Opposition Leader, to the to Finance Minister and the Shadow Finance Minister and more people in the Labor Party calling for them to commit as a pre-election pledge to, to um, uh, full compensation for the Sterling First victims in the form of an act of grace payment from the Finance Department. They could write a cheque now and pay them all. These pe- these elderly people are losing their homes and all the the, the various methods for compensation are not available to them, mm. right? And so they have to, you know, they, they, they really don't have a, a, a chance to have a decent end to their life unless the government does this, right? So this is an important call and it's, it's not just about these victims, it's about holding regulators like ASIC properly accountable and the government, which gives ASIC its directions, properly accountable for its failings so that that becomes an impulse to clean out ASIC More And we'll talk about that next Thursday as well. So look out for that announcement when we make it, and we'll have all the details where to call. Please, you know, these are effective things when we do these campaigns, getting people to make calls. um, Help us hit the phones next week and blitz these politicians.
0: Very important. Now, on to the first topic, the other war against the Anglo-American rules-based order. Now, of course, we've been addressing for a few weeks now Um, the Russian intervention into Ukraine and trying to give people and viewers a broader sense of why this is underway, looking at it in particular from Russia's standpoint and um, the agreements that were made not to extend NATO eastward, uh, which is part of the post-Cold War rules-based order, which also includes, which we're going to focus on somewhat more today than we have in previous shows, which focused on the military component, we want to look more today at the economic component of that rules-based order uh, and how Russia and a lot of other countries, in fact most of the world, have had enough of that system. And in fact it's destroying the world's economy as yep. we see here in Australia. Uh, and because I it's to...
1: not the rules-based order, it's the our rules. Well,
0: exactly. And I wanted to reference an article, uh, an interview in the Australian Alert Service, the last two editions of the Alert Service in our Australian Almanac, which is an interview with a British professor and expert in Russian affairs, Professor Richard Sackwar, where he actually describes the the setup of the rules-based order as a massive act of usurpation, uh, where basically Britain and America created their own rules. So this is not international law. These are their rules uh, that they imposed to effectively substitute for the creation of an international order after World War II. Um, So that's the standpoint that countries like Russia, um, and now with the military threat, which had reached a point where, you know, there was no going back for Russia vis-à-vis a build-up in Ukraine um, until February this year, uh, had reached a point of no return and we're going to discuss a little bit more about how other countries uh, share that sentiment with Russia in a moment. But firstly, um, just on the Australian response to what's going on, um, yesterday our Prime Minister joined the United States in accusing Russia of war crimes. And this was, they were discussing in particular the upcoming G20 summit, which is hosted by Indonesia Uh, And Scott Morrison said that the idea of sitting around a table with Vladimir Putin, who the United States are already in the position of calling out war crimes in Ukraine, for me is a step too far. And he went on to to incredibly say, we need to have people in the room that aren't invading other countries.
1: Lisa, I have a a Twitter account. (laughs) People can follow me at at Robbie Barwick. And on my profile and in my pinned tweet, I warn people what I do on that account. And what I do is a Twitter term, it's so Twitter, it's called whataboutery. And whataboutery is a term that um, American and British warmongers came up with to attack people who call them hypocrites, because they are hypocrites. Right? And they say, oh, that's just whataboutery. What about your wars? Yeah, what about your wars? And I'm going to keep saying what about your wars that have killed millions of people. In the Middle East and North Africa. They're starving, they're literally starving a country to death in Afghanistan by withholding their own foreign reserves from them, right? And then they have the temerity mm-hmm. to call what is happening in Ukraine war crimes. We have the, the day before, the night, the evening before Morrison said that yesterday, Stella Morris got married in the UK. And Stella Morris's husband, participated in a wedding ceremony and then went straight back to prison because his name is Julian Assange. And he's in that prison because he exposed our side's war crimes. David McBride, the Australian who did everything he could to take the evidence he saw of our war crimes, Australian war crimes in Afghanistan, to the brass, through the proper channels, and was stymied. He then went public. He blew the whistle. He's facing 50 years in jail for that. That's, that's what we, we, we deny our war crimes exist and we jail the people who prove them, right? And this is sickening hypocrisy and Australians have got to stop accepting it because if you don't accept it, if, if you don't stop accepting, it, if you don't stop tolerating it and instead you let this hypocrisy be targeted at one man because you too hate Putin for whatever reason you've heard for 20 years, you wouldn't have a clue by the way who Putin is you've heard for 20 years he's a monster, he's Hitler, so you hate him and therefore you also hate Scott Morrison except when Scott Morrison's talking about Putin. Then he's wonderful. No, he's not wonderful. He's a creep. Hopefully he gets voted out in this election and what he's doing is rank hypocrisy and it's never going to stop that war unless we demand our leaders stop.
0: Now, uh, we want to contrast what's coming out of Scott Morrison and many, many other leaders with um, some... Other viewpoints, one you wanted to mention a few, some of the coverage coming out of Newsweek, for instance. This is
1: quite crucial because what you're getting that's building up this kind of... that that allows Scott Morrison to get away with this hypocrisy, what's pouring out of our televisions every night, I can sit here categorically and tell the viewers, is 100% lies. You're being told that Russia is committing... A brutal annihilation of Ukraine and massive war crimes, and they're going to—they could use chemical weapons, and they're blowing—they're they're threatening to blow up nuclear power stations and all this kind of stuff. It's all garbage. Now, in the last couple of days, Pentagon figures, people in the Pentagon, there's a there's a truism, Elisa, that the people who hate war the most are soldiers. The people who actually fight wars mm. hate it the most, right? And there are people. In the, there's, there's plenty bad in the Pentagon, but there's also plenty of just career military people who understand how dangerous this can get. In the last few days, they have intervened in this propaganda through the American press. And so, Newsweek, standard, run-of-the-mill, mainstream American um, media, Newsweek, has run a series of articles, and also even Reuters ran one um, the other day from a, an unnamed Pentagon source saying, this, this claim that Russia is going to use chemical weapons, there's no evidence for that. But Newsweek has run a series of articles. We highlighted a couple last week on Newsweek acknowledging, look, yeah, there are real Nazis in Ukraine, which are now denied, but they're acknowledging it. And by the way, our ABC here yesterday interviewed a commander of the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi battalion that controlled Mariupol, and, and referred to the battalion as the famed Azov Battalion. And as a political analyst pointed out to me, that's a good euphemism for Nazis, famed. Like, you know, the famed Adolf Hitler. Yeah, the famed Adolf as of Battalion. Mm. But anyway, what Newsweek has done is very important. The headline of this article, this is from the 22nd of March. Now, remember, you're being told it's a... It's, it's a it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, what do you call it? it it's a, a wasteland approach that Putin's applying in Ukraine, right? Destroying everything. The headline is, Putin's bombers could devastate Ukraine... But he's holding back. Here's why. As destructive as the Ukraine war is, Russia is causing less damage and killing fewer civilians than it could, US intelligence experts say. And these are, again, people from the def- unnamed people from the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA. And it was the DIA back in 2015 that blew the whistle on the fact that it was American policy that had caused ISIS in Syria, right? So there's good people in the DIA. So this DIA um, an analyst, who's an Air Force lawyer, he said, if we merely convince ourselves that Russia is bombing indiscriminately or that it is failing to inflict more harm because its personnel are not up to the task or because it is technically inept, then we are not seeing the real conflict. He, as of the, and then Newsweek goes on to, to report, um, uh, the Russian military, according to this analyst, analyst, has been showing restraint in its long-range attacks. As of the past weekend, in 24 days of conflict, Russia has flown some 1,400 strike sorties and delivered almost 1,000 missiles. By contrast, the United States flew more sorties and delivered more weapons in the first day of the 2003 Iraq war. The vast majority of the airstrikes are over the battlefield, with Russian aircraft providing close air support to ground forces. The remaining less than 20%, according to US experts, has been aimed at military airfields, barracks and supporting depots. Quote, I know it's hard to swallow that the carnage and destruction could be much worse than it is, says the DIA analyst, but that's what the facts show. This suggests to me, at least, that Putin is not intentionally attacking civilians, that perhaps he is mindful that he needs to limit damage in order to leave an out for negotiations. And then just jumping to the end of this rather lengthy article, but the, the conclusion from this analyst was, I know that the news keeps repeating that Putin is targeting civilians, but there is no evidence that Russia is intentionally doing so. In fact, I'd say that Russians could be killing thousands more civilians if it wants to. I know it's thin consolation that it could be a lot worse, the DIA analyst says, but to understand how that is the case should really change people's perspectives, even inside the US government, as to how to end this.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, we want to show a clip of Jeremy Corbyn, and I think it's a brilliant contrast because... um, This is a video that applies perfectly, everything he says applies perfectly to what we should be doing today in order to have real diplomacy to diffuse this situation which could lead to nuclear World War III. However, he apparently said this in 2014, which of course is when um, these Nazis came to power and had we dealt with it at that time in the way that he suggests, we wouldn't be where we are now.
1: We were very, very shocked to hear. What you're about to, clear, to, to listen to sounds like it was said this week, yeah. but it was 2014. It's incredibly prophetic. Um, I, the other comment before we play it, this is the only mainstream major party politician in the whole Anglosphere with any credibility on foreign policy, Elisa. Mm-hmm. The only one. He has stood on principle his entire political career. He fought hard against the Iraq war. And so he's not dripping in blood like all our current leaders who are dripping in blood. He's not. He's completely credible on this. Listen to what he says. This is the avenue to peace.
2: I'm not supporting of uh, Russian military action, and I do think there has to be a peace process, and there has to be a process of demilitarization of the Ukraine and sticking to the original non-nuclear agreement. But I'd also say this. The hypocrisy of the West is unbelievable on this. Where was the legality in the war in Iraq? Where was the legality of so many of the other interventions that have been made? made elsewhere and if one reads very carefully what all the Ukrainian forces are saying yes there is a very nasty far-right force in Ukraine at the present time which is part of the government there is also a more liberal grouping in the Ukraine there is also a very large Russian um, grouping in the Ukraine who obviously have some loyalties towards Russia does the Ukraine break up? That's a matter for the Ukrainian people. But the idea that we should move the whole thing in rhetoric towards some kind of military war against Russia seems to me an absolute disaster. But I think the wider issue is that the EU has got very close to NATO. NATO has been pushing very hard to expand eastwards. Inevitably, Russia is going to get very nervous if NATO sets up bases all around its borders. That in turn encourages Russian militarism. Can't we go back to the point where Ukraine was a nuclear-free country? that was not going to be a member of any alliance, either with Russia or with NATO, and start to demilitarise and de-escalate the situation and allow a proper debate, much longer than a week, Mm. for people to decide their own future in the Ukraine. And it seems to me there's a terrible danger of a rush to a combination of an economic and a military war, and goodness knows what the consequence of that will be. But I'm quite alarmed by the way in which the NATO General Secretary seems to be ramping up the ante all the time. It's not his job to go round promoting wars. He's meant to be answerable to a number of different governments. He appears to be behaving as though he's some free agent that can say and do what he likes and, and, and develop this very, very dangerous scenario. Ukraine has been the war ground of Europe for two centuries. Millions have died in Ukraine from famine, from war, from occupation, and from disasters. Let's not visit that upon them again. Mm. Let's try and de escalate, demilitarize, and bring about some kind of dialogue and peace process which will guarantee a peaceful future for those people and for Europe. I'm not sure that the Russian people, having lost so many in Afghanistan in the past, want to see Russian lives lost in the Ukraine any more than people in this country want to see us going into some ludicrous futile war which will have to end up with a political settlement all wars end with a political settlement let's start from the point of a political settlement not start from the point of building up armed forces moving fighter jets to poland mobilizing the fleet and all these kind of things negotiate through and secondly last point the west has no moral authority whatsoever to lecture on this after drone strikes after iraq after so many other internal coups and conflicts around the world, surely hand the thing back to the UN to try to bring about some kind of peace process and de-escalate the rhetoric which is in danger of plunging us into a catastrophic war with nuclear implications. Thank you very much. Indeed.
0: All right, so that is very, very stark comparison to what we've seen from other leaders, and if only he was still the leader of the party. And in well, that's fact, why he's not.
1: That's, exactly. that's why he's not. If he got close, he did get close to, the, to 10 Downing Street. If he was in there, American uh, British policy would have to be very different. The British establishment, they're not democratic. They could not let him anywhere near mm, the place.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're going to be building, though, a network of people. We are building a network of people like that in every country that are opposing this directionality of war and a key mm. platform to prevent war is economic development. And what I want to run through quickly now is some of the financial and economic blowback from the um, excruciating sanctions, which are virtually unparalleled across history, that have been put onto Russia, which of course are not only affecting Russia but the world, particularly in the bad economic framework we're in.
1: And these sanctions, Elisa, are not punishment for Russia. Be, you be very clear on this, they're not punishment for Russia. Because why didn't we get punished for when we did much worse in Iraq and Libya and these places? Mm-hmm. These are economic warfare. Mm-hmm. And our country putting on sanctions is not punishing Russia. We are joint, We are siding against Russia in economic warfare. We're already at war with Russia.
0: Yeah, but that, that's causing a lot of countries to stand up and say, hey, we could be next. And you yes. know, you'll see that as we go through. Now, first on the table is the threat of a Russian sovereign debt default. Now, the head of the IMF, Georgieva, Uh, said that that's not an improbable event any longer however she went on to say that it's not systemically relevant anyway which is a nonsense because the last time Russia defaulted on foreign bonds in 1998 um, the head of the IMF at that time Michelle Camdesu said that the global system came very very close to the precipice and there's an awareness of this because on the 16th of March when the first interest payment came due on Russian government bonds Russia basically said, look, we'll pay you in rubles, take it or leave it. The ratings agencies globally said that would constitute a default. Russia came back and said, well, take it out of the accounts that you've frozen, you've effectively stolen from us, which are our foreign reserves held at the US Fed and other central banks. And the US uh, blinked and they accepted that, issuing a temporary licence, which lasts until the 25th of May. So, and then there's going to be other... Um, defaults coming due or bond payments, I should say, coming due, which we'll see what happens. Um, But just to give you some of the headlines on how this is being looked at, the London Guardian said an official default and a, quote, full-blown collapse is almost inevitable. Financial Times said be under no illusion. Russia will not be the only ones to suffer under Russian sanctions. The world should remember Lehman and brace for a global financial and economic shock. Now, there's already impacts on the um, uh, global financial speculative world because whilst you can try to cut off Russia from the financial system globally, including the SWIFT um, interbank payment systems, Visa, which have pulled out, um, you know, freezing their foreign reserves, even um, one of the biggest Russian banks in Europe has been put under a moratorium for a potential bail-in. You can't cut off the financial contracts so easily and things like the credit default swaps which caused the 2008 Mm. meltdown um, on Russian debt are worth 41 billion US dollars and there's even more in terms of Russian corporate debt Um, no one knows who's on the hook for these losses the markets have already priced in an 80 percent likelihood of a default Um, And you already have massive losses from, for example, BlackRock has lost $17 on its funds exposed to Russian assets. JP Morgan Chase and PIMCO have posted large losses. Uh, JP Morgan is exposed to derivatives contracts which are in trouble whereby the London Metals Exchange already had to suspend nickel trading to prevent... Uh, A number of large trading firms from failing and Europe's largest energy traders under the umbrella of the European Federation of Energy Traders have called on governments European governments for an urgent bailout of their derivatives debt because of course a big component of energy trading metals trading etc is speculative derivatives contracts.
1: Uh, Oh the irony they're, they're, they're the same people that refused to clean up Wall Street in London after the 2008 crash and clean out all these derivatives are the same people that have caused these this war and now the very thing they wouldn't clean out is what's going back, to back bite in them. the
0: face. Um, a Credit Suisse strategist said in a client note that global stability is heavily jeopardised An Italian financial analyst said Europe and the US are aiming at chaos at ATMs and banks in the Russian Federation Do you have any idea of the side effects that such a gamble can have? And even Reuters said this could produce blowback in the form of large potential losses for their own banks, companies and investors, often in unexpected ways. In the past, such fires have been precursors to financial crises. Now, there's a lot of speculation amid this, even from the mainstream press, that this will cause a lot of countries to rethink the global financial order that Russia's being kicked out of and which they're a part of. So the Wall Street Journal on the 3rd of March said, sanctions have shown that currency reserves accumulated by central banks can be taken away. With China taking note, this may reshape geopolitics, economic management and even the international role of the US dollar. Um, the London Economist on the 5th of March said the, wis- the West risks pushing more countries to delink from the Western-led financial system, possibly leading to a dangerous fragmentation of the world economy. You had headlines in Foreign Affairs, the end of globalisation. You've got the Saudis considering using the Chinese currencies to sell China oil. There's a lot of um, discussions that are breaking out about this because In terms of the real economy, this is causing big problems. You've got disruptions to the Belt and Road Whale lines that link China with Europe, most of which pass through Russia or Ukraine. Hundreds of tankers and bulk carriers, which have been diverted away from Russian and Ukrainian ports in the Black Sea, are stranded and can't offload their cargo as a result of the sanctions. Russia and Ukraine supply 29% of the world's grain and world wheat output was already scheduled to fall by 10 million tonnes this year for various reasons. Russia and Ukraine also supply a lot of fertiliser, nickel and crucial metals used to build microchips. So it has a very big impact. In Russia itself, I'll also add to this picture... There's a debate that has erupted and of course they've had to take initial measures to protect themselves such as preventing measures to prevent capital flight, um, prevent closure of departing foreign companies. Like I was reading they took over all the McDonald's that were shut down with local um, rebranding and so forth. (laughs) Um, You know, because they can't just let all this flood out of the country. Um, They've got to ramp up domestic production, particularly manufacturing, to replace things they can't import They've put a six-month debt moratorium for place, in place for agriculture and there's measures obviously to back up bank liquidity. Um, but there is a broader discussion about how do we rebuild the entire financial architecture and people like uh, former advisor to Putin and Minister for Integration and Macroeconomics of the Eurasian Economic Commission, Sergei Glaziev, someone who we know quite well, is discussing how the central bank must immediately provide credit lines for targeted investment projects at 2-3% to 3% interest and other measures to basically rewire the whole financial system, including preventing speculation in um, currency and so forth. I mean, these are things we talk about that should be done anyway. And
1: the credit is for um, what's called import substitution, which is otherwise known as domestic manufacturing. Uh, Lisa, what, what those measures are being debated, it's quite extraordinary. We've pointed this out about Australian history. Look at what the economic measures our governments took in World War One and World War Two, and under the necessity of war, suddenly everything's possible, mm-hmm. and we our economy performs brilliantly. When the war's not there, though, the bankers take over and says, "No, no, no! Our rules, our our rules based order, the free market has to reign. You can't do that anymore." There's all this. There's all this stuff, um, and we all bow, we all bow the knee, right? Russia's now under the circumstance of war. It's for these are the things that actually should have been. It, Russia had a terrible time in the 90s, um, and in fact, the other day, one of the architects of the shock therapy that really crushed Russia's economy in the 90s, Anatoly Chubais, mm-hmm. defected from the country, right, fled the country. I suspect he's gone oh, to pick up his payoff back in London. <laughs> he didn't want to give it up because he really was the architect. The, the, the same people, we, we reported this at the time, the people who directed Jeff Kennett's privatisation program in Victoria, which gutted our economy... Bragged to us in our publications, we published it that their men in Moscow. They said our men in Moscow. This London guy, Lord Ralph Harris, our man, our men in Moscow are running, are running this reform in Moscow. Well, this Anatoly Bias was one of them. P- Someone like Putin came to power. He had to stop the rot, but he couldn't clean out everything. Now the war's here. They're focusing now. They're at the point of saying, okay, what do we need to do to make our economy much more functional, which it should have been all along. Because the other point I just wanted to comment on quickly about what you said before about the, um, the, the current order, which is the US dollar-based order. Yeah. What the Saudis are potentially doing by not answering the phone to the Americans and considering using the yuan is tectonic. Our current order started in 1973 when in very curious circumstances during the Yom Kippur War and the OPEC countries, which were mainly Arab, put an oil embargo on America and the West for supporting Israel in the Yom Kippur War, the contradiction was... Despite that oil embargo, the Saudis gave America the biggest lifeline of all time because two years earlier, the US dollar had been taken off gold mm-hmm. and the Saudis said in that, in that Yom Kippur war in the oil embargo, we'll only accept payment for oil in US dollars. And since 1973, we've had a US petrodollar world. And now the Saudis are looking at taking payment for oil in yuan. Mm. This are, these, are, these are tectonic things yeah. and it's self-inflicted. It's a bit like bailing. Final comment. Bail-in is supposed to save banks, but what does it do? It undermines confidence in the banks, right? You'd think, well, I don't want my money in a bank. They're going to steal it. <laughs> and that's what the Americans have done with the US dollar. They've sanctioned countries to death using their power of the dollar. And so countries are saying, well, keep your dollar.
0: Yeah, and just on that, because the BRICS countries just had a meeting, at least ambassadors with the Russian um, foreign minister. And, of course, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And, <clears throat> of course, as Putin has said, reflecting what you've just uh, noted... Everybody now knows that financial reserves can simply be stolen and many countries will begin to convert their paper and digital assets into real reserves. Well, Brazil's former president, Rousseff, um, has made a comment on this, um, saying the dollar could now be replaced and describing the US dollar as an international weapon of coercion. We're just gonna run that clip.
3: In the financial sector, the US hegemony, the US dollar hegemony faces new challenge. As a global currency, the U.S. dollar holds an irreplaceable position in international trade and payments. This has made the dollar a weapon of retaliation and a tool of extortion against other countries. Here in Latin America, we have two examples, terrible examples: sixty years of blockage in Cuba, and now more recently, the the block, the blockage regarding to Venezuela in a time of pandemic, the US government has been imposing far reaching sanctions on foreign banks, companies uh, against countries that do business against the US wishes with countries like Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, now and Russia and also China and still in a smaller regard China. They use uh, their a national jurisdiction as an as a coercion weapon, international coercion weapon, given this and taking into consideration the last uh, events in geopolitical events, it is unlikely that the dollar will remain irreplaceable forever. Mm. And
0: I wanted to also mention the South African uh, President, Cyril Ramaphosa, who made a very important a number of things. He actually said this war could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings of its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion would lead to greater instability, not less. Uh, and uh, he was attacked by the US State Department for a bricks-to-bricks phone call with Putin. But he's also proposed a, 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 that the non-aligned movement... Of countries that don't take sides be revitalised to ensure that those countries that are not part of the hegemonic contest between the big powers can work together to build peace across the globe um,
1: we, we, we ran this map on our um, front page of our alert service last week Lisa but Australians need to take stock yep. we by aligning ourselves to the Anglo-Americans we are actually isolating ourselves terribly in the world the majority of the world is not with us on this so what you, you, the perception coming out of your television every night, I can tell you, is rubbish.
0: Mm-hmm. So enough said on that subject for today. We want to move on to um, the economic front here in Australia, which is probably not that much better. <laughs> so the topic is how to stuff up an infrastructure announcement. Uh, and we're referring here to the announcement made in the last couple of days by the government and the Prime Minister um, that they're going to allocate $5.4 billion in funding to the construction of the Hells Gates Dam. This what, is
1: yeah, so the Hells Gates Dam, Melissa, is the centrepiece of the Bradfield Scheme, right? And it's a, the Bradfield Scheme, this, this week is the 90th anniversary or the 90th birthday of, the, of Bradfield's greatest creation, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, right? One of the... Still the most brilliant engineering um, uh, accomplishments in the world. And Bradfield was a genius, the greatest engineer in Australian history. He was... He was, it, it was a genius at what he did. He was a genius at his ideas... And he read, had this.
0: Read an article in the alert service. That's right. You know to get a real sense of how his vision uh, worked. It's quite stunning Front, how he imagined the, the future of this country.
1: And of course, um, you know we visited the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge the other day, and it's just, you know people in Sydney are lucky they get to see it every day. But when you when you're not from Sydney, um, it's 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 awe inspiring. We got to walk across it. Um, so. Bradfield has this proposal for water diversion because you've got this curiosity. The Great Dividing Range down the, down the, the east coast of Australia, on one side there's lots of water <laughs> and on the other side there's nothing, right? And um, uh, people like Bradfield saw that and thought, well, hang on. Doesn't take much. We're human beings. Mm -hmm. We've got ingenuity. We can take some of that water and put it on the other side. And that's called the Bradfield Scheme. So the Hell's Gate Dam is the, the Burdekin River is a huge river. The Hell's Gate Dam is on the Burdekin River, just northwest of Townsville there. And what that would do is is, um, store the water so it can be diverted inland. And the, the, the area that it, that it takes the water from gets 21% of Australia's rainfall. The area it diverts it to gets 1.9% of Australia's mm. rainfall, right? Um, and it makes a big difference. So Morrison made this announcement. Now, we've been pushing for it for years. Bob Catter, I mean, this, this project is synonymous with Bob Catter. He's been pushing for it for years. And remember, go back and look at the very first episode of our show in the new year, this year, where we talked about Where's Barnaby Joyce on this, no. right? So we now have a sign that we want to play the video we made. Um, is Barnaby Joyce an infrastructure phony? Um, just to remind people what the parameters are. So have a look at
4: the, how the project works and Barnaby's role in pushing it. Is Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce an infrastructure phony, or is he fair dinkum? I'm Benjamin Pierce of the Citizens Party. The Bradfield Scheme is a huge project that would capture excess water in the northern and eastern parts of Queensland and bring it south and west over the Great Divide. In 2019, Barnaby Joyce aggressively championed the Bradfield Scheme. At the time, he was a lowly backbencher. Back then, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the Bradfield Scheme, as you can see from his Facebook page. T.J. Bradfield, he built your Sydney Harbour Bridge, he built the Story Bridge, he was no goose, and this follows a template uh, basically set out by him. This is so important for our nation. See, these, these are actually answers, not just complaints, answers to your problems. That is what government is supposed to be about. Yet, now that he's become Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce has been strangely silent on this question. For the sake of our nation, it is vital and urgent that Mr. Joyce Regain his voice on this issue. Every Australian leader should support this idea. The Bradfield scheme would take water from where it regularly causes flooding and move it to areas that regularly suffer from drought. The Citizens Party has outlined 17 large-scale water projects that can reduce and control flooding and drought-proof vast areas of our territory. The obstacles to building these projects are not primarily technological, but rather political. The political problems mainly involve the question of funding. To solve these problems, the Citizens' Party has drafted legislation to create a National Development Bank that would provide low-cost, long-term credit, does not require higher taxes, does not increase the budget deficit and does not involve borrowing from foreign countries. In this video, we will focus on the Bradfield scheme as a good example of the water projects that Australia needs. Australia's greatest engineer, Dr John Bradfield, proposed this idea in 1938. In concept, it's simple. Look at this map of the average annual rainfall of Australia. You can see here in purple, dark blue and blue-green that there is a narrow strip of land along the eastern and northern shores which receives large amounts of rainfall. Now let's look at this map showing some additional features. The dark line indicates the Great Dividing Range. The light purple shows areas in which water flows primarily north and east. These are areas of high flood risk. The darker purple shows areas in which water flows primarily south and west down the western side of the Great Dividing Range. These are areas of low flood risk and frequent drought. Dr Bradfield's original proposal has been modified and updated by Sir Leo Hellshire and Sir Frank Moore to create what's called the New Bradfield Scheme. Leo Hellshire is credited with the modern economic development of Queensland and Frank Moore is a legendary Queensland business leader. In 2019 Barnaby Joyce did an excellent interview with Sir Leo and Sir Frank and posted it on his Facebook page. The new Bradfield scheme will direct water west and south through a series of tunnels and canals, flowing into the Warrego River and ultimately replenishing the Murray-Darling Basin. This scheme would have many benefits. It would control and reduce damage from flooding, lessen the erosion of topsoil, make vast areas of fertile land drought-proof, and create national wealth by fostering agriculture. The damage due to flooding and drought can cost billions of dollars in a single year. By reducing that damage, the new Bradfield Scheme will pay for itself many times over. Current estimates of the cost of this project are approximately $15 billion. Australia can fund the new Bradfield Scheme project and many others with a national bank. Here's how it would work. Initial capital for the new national bank can be readily raised from super funds and other Australian investors by offering a government guaranteed return at a competitive rate. $40 billion in initial capital means the national bank would have a $320 billion lending capacity. The bank will make loans at low interest rates to state and local governments, regional authorities and to businesses in productive industries. The Citizens Party has written legislation to create this new National Bank. All that's needed is for Australians to unite to demand this solution. Please sign our petition calling for the creation of a National Bank. Let's send a message to Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce. You said it Mr Joyce. The people believed you meant it. Now it's time for you to represent it Mr Deputy Prime Minister. Let's not suffer another day of drought or flooding without taking action to implement the solution. Please sign our petition and tell other people about it.
0: Now just to clarify what was wrong with this announcement Robbie. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because Bob, Robert, Which Barnaby knows. Yeah, Based on that, Barnaby yeah. knows
1: what's wrong with this and announcement.
0: So Robbie Catter, Bob Catter's son, the member for Traeger, put out an announcement, a media release about this, welcoming the funding but saying, look, we've got to do this right because um, he's concerned the funding is tied to a proposal which actually works against Bradfield's dream because it would not have the high enough dam wall, which needs to be a height of 395 metres, in order to send the water west via these channels to irrigate the rich black soils of inland Queensland. There's a ha-
1: That's right. There's a half-baked proposal for the Hellsgate Dam, which would, yes, store water, but provide it for an extra 60,000 hectares of irrigation in the Burdekin River Basin, which is great, but it's on the wrong side of the Great Dividing Range. If you built the dam with a where the wall gets to 395 metres, that would be enough to, using gravity, divert water through this gap that Robbie Cattercourt identifies here. Um, He says uh, uh, it could start at the uplands desert near Pentland where there's a break in the Great Dividing Range. You could divert it through that gap and it could start flowing down where it's really, really needed Mm -hmm. in that part of the world. And all all you need is to have the vision and the foresight to build the wall high enough. That's all you need. Does Morrison have that? No.
0: Why would you do it and just not quite, you know...
1: Well, well, Robbie Catter's quote, Elisa, is actually stark. He said, um, the the proposal that's tabled at the moment would kill the Bradfield scheme forever. If you build the wall not to the right height... And that becomes the permanent wall. It would be a much bigger deal to change it in the future. Build it right the first time. This
0: dam is too big of an asset, he said, to make short-sighted decisions on. And that's the problem with our leaders. They are short-sighted.
1: Well, there's two problems with it, just to conclude on this. One is infrastructure in Australia is used as a tease at election time. Our politicians are not visionaries, nation-builders who think about the economic development of Australia. They know Australians support infrastructure. They get excited about infrastructure. They want the infrastructure. So at election time, they pull out these, these proposals, these announcerables. And that's what Scott Morrison is the epitome of that. The second problem is this. This is $5.4 billion from the annual budget. That's why it's announced as such a big deal. Mm. Oh, we're taking $5.4 billion for this project. That's, in other words, we're prioritising this project over everything else we could do. If we had a national bank, Elisa where infrastructure, you don't buy your house from your annual budget. You don't buy your car most of the time unless you're really rich from your annual budget. You borrow for those things, mm-hmm. right? Long, the long-term investments you make, you borrow for it because you know that that's the, eas- the, the easiest and the best way to do it. That's what a national bank can do for the country, but yeah. you're not going cap in hand to international creditors who want their pound of flesh. You're borrowing it from yourself. The Australian people could be investing in this and our government refuses to do it. They tie infrastructure to the annual budget and that's why we never have enough and we have stupid announcements like this.
0: And Bob Katter is committed to putting up the legislation that we've written for that national bank. So the job could be done very fast. Like that. Now that's all we've got time for this week.
1: Remember, look out for our announcement about what you can help this week, what we need as much help as we possible. Be prepared to make some phone calls next week to demand this justice for these uh, Sterling First victims.
0: Yep, and don't forget to like and share this video. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.